Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Looking for a new podcast with a Connecticut connection? We'll learn about a crime podcast produced by New London's newspaper, The Day. Reporter Karen Florin and Carlos Virhen will join us to talk about the podcast called Case Unsolved. That's later. Also, Connecticut State Parks are busy already with the start of summer just a couple of weeks away, but not all of the state parks are open. We'll get an update on recovery efforts inside Sleeping Giant State Park. We'll also hear from Hamden's mayor. Now, Sleeping Giant closed after severe storms in May caused widespread damage in the park and also in the town. First, last week, a pair of high-profile deaths shocked many. Designer Kate Spade and Anthony Bourdain, TV host, chef, and author, have both died by suicide. Have you lost someone to suicide? Do you think more needs to be done to combat stigma surrounding suicide? You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Now, the deaths of Spade and Bourdain come as the federal government has released new numbers on suicides in the U.S., and the trends are not looking good. Joining us now for more is Dr. Jill Harkavy-Friedman. She's vice president of research at the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. She's also a clinician. Uh, Dr. Harkavy-Friedman, welcome to the show. Hi, Lucy. Thank you for having me. Uh, Before we begin, I do want to mention, and uh, we've done shows on this in the past, there is a national suicide prevention hotline. That number is 1-800-273-TALK. There's a crisis text line. You can text TALK to 741-741. And in Connecticut, you can always call 211. Uh, So, Jill, I wanted to uh, dive into this report from the CDC where uh, it's found that suicide rates have increased in nearly every state uh, from 1999 through 2016. Uh, up more than 30% in half of the states since 1999. Uh, What's your reaction to the numbers? Well, I think the numbers are a call to action. It's actually been a gradual increase of suicide rate, and really what we want to see is a decrease in suicide rate. So I think it, it highlights that suicide is a national problem, and unless we do something about it, we are going to keep seeing things climb. But we believe uh, that we can bring that curve down, and we know that suicide can pre- be prevented. Uh, in 2016 alone, 45,000 Americans died by suicide. What are some of the reasons behind this increase from your organization's standpoint, Jill? Well, we know, first of all, that suicide is complex. There's no one thing that causes it. We know that mental health conditions are often involved, but most people with mental health conditions do not die by suicide. So there are other lifetime factors that contribute as well as recent stress. And it's really important for us uh, to focus on getting access to mental health care, early identification, and limiting access to lethal means. Those are three things we can do right away to try to bring down the rate of suicide. 
Uh, when we look at the years surveyed again between 1999 through 2016, you know, part of those years was during uh, the recession. When we look at uh, how these numbers can change, um, how there are cycles, I mean, is that also something when we look at when the economy dips, people lose their jobs, you see numbers like this spike? So we do see a mild increase related to things like uh, recessions and unemployment. Again, it's not the recession itself. Most people are not taking their lives. But what happens is that those people who have risk factors may be uh, triggered by losing their job. Also remember, when you lose your job, you lose your health care sometimes. So that if you have a mental health condition that you're taking care of, and you, or a physical health condition or pain, and you lose those healthcare, uh, that health care coverage, that could also trigger uh, suicide. So, again, most peop- many people lost their jobs. I think it was 4.8 million people lost their jobs. Most people you know, pr- were able to get through it. But those people that have other factors, like a history of mental health condition, family history, uh, traumatic brain injury, physical uh, um, illness, pain, those can make you a little bit more vulnerable when a stress happens. And um, when you're in that stress, your brain and your system can change so that you're much less flexible and much less able to problem solve and make decisions. Um, We're emphasizing the numbers, but again, there are people behind these numbers. What do we know about the demographics, uh, Jill, uh, and the people who are dying by suicide in this country? Who are they? Well, it's interesting. Uh, Just to start, we know that suicide cuts across all demographics. Uh, There's no demographic untouched. However, if we were to look at where the most suicides occur and for whom, it's mostly for males, middle age, um, white males in particular, but we've seen an increase in middle-aged females as well. That's where the largest increase has been through these past few years. Uh, when we look at uh, the demographics again, so I understand when we look at the number of suicide deaths, 77% were white men? Yep, 77% were white men, and 51% of suicides are by firearms. And so the, there are two things we can do with that. One is to reach out to white men and learn more about what is leading them to suicide. And that's why we need things like the National Violent Death Reporting System, where the CDC got its data from. The National De- National Violent Death Reporting System, or NVDRS, collects data for um, from the police records, from the hospital records, and the coroner records. And so that's why their information is a little bit different from what we know from research about suicide. Uh, and if you think about it, in the CDC report, most people were not um, reported to have a mental health condition. And what we know from interviewing family members and friends is that 90% of people who die by suicide have a mental health condition. So that discrepancy is a warning that we need to increase mental health awareness and we need to increase access to care, health care in general. On the phone with me is Dr. Jill Harkavy-Friedman, Vice President of Research at the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. She's also a clinician as we look at uh, the latest uh, study from the CDC that finds uh, suicide rates in our country. They have risen in in nearly every state. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I wanted to go back, Jill. You mentioned that there are 
also has been a significant increase in the number of middle-aged women who die by suicide. I reference uh, the death of designer Kate Spade last week. When we look at women, uh, what, what drives them to suicide? Well, you know, it's interesting. Many things that drive anybody to suicide are the same. And we have been studying people, not women and men, but everybody together. And I think that these data and recent deaths highlight the need to study everybody, but then also break it down by factors like gender um, and sexual orientation and um, even unemployment and work. So what we know about women is that more women are dying by suicide than previously, but the culture around being a woman and being in the workforce middle age has changed through the years. I think we need to learn more about that. We also, um, you know, there's been a lot of work uh, talking about whether or not, for instance, uh, the issue of hormone replacement for menopausal women. We don't know the impact of that. We don't know how to treat uh, depression among women. We don't really know what is driving it yet, but I do believe with research we're going to figure that out. Uh, you, you've mentioned the importance of research. The federal government, are they doing enough to study uh, the causes behind the suicide rate increasing uh, nationwide? Uh, and in terms of when we look at treatment, uh, medication is just one option. Uh, is, is enough being done to look at alternative treatments so that people um, can feel comfortable trying different options if they um, have suicidal ideation? You know, that's a great question, and it's really a two-part question. One is, what can the government do? And the other is, what do we do to help people who have suicidal behavior? So in terms of the government, suicide prevention research is sorely underfunded. And in fact, at the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, we're at our advocacy forum right now in Washington, D.C. And tomorrow, we're going to visit all 535 congressional offices. And one of the things we're requesting is increase in funding for research. The research dollars are going up to a mere $42 million compared to billions of dollars. Now, we know that when we invest in research, we're able to find life-saving solutions. Now, the other question you raised is how do you help somebody who is thinking about suicide? And, yes, medication is one option, but it, you can't just – it's not enough. It can help people to function better, but we actually have been learning about treatment that can help people manage suicidal ideation when it comes up so that they don't act on it. So uh, there's lots to be learned about treatments, but through funding, especially from the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, um, we have funded the development of several treatments that have been shown, uh, and they're psychotherapies that have been shown to help reduce suicide attempts. And also, we know that they also help change the brain in to make the brain more functional so when someone's thinking about suicide they don't have to act on it. Lisa is calling from Thomaston and you can join the conversation too 8602757266. Lisa, uh, welcome to the show. Thanks for calling in. Thank you. Uh, what's your comment or your question? Um, well, I have a question. My our family was uh personally um affected by suicide in uh, uh, many years ago. But um, I'm curious to know, you know, has there been any, you, you mentioned white men and, and the majority of those are, are uh, suicide by, by uh, gun. 
has there been any research into what percentage are, you know, prior military, what percentage um, were also had some sort of drug use? Um, I'd be curious to see what the, the numbers are on that. Thank you, Lisa, yes. for your questions. Go oh. ahead, Jill. Sorry. Well, we are learning. It's a, it's a, it, we're working on a system to track prior military history. And so one of the ways is the VA is working with the Department of Defense to try and have more integrated and continuous um, identification. But what we know so far is that about um, 18% of suicides are by military veterans. You mentioned, excuse me, you mentioned drug use, and that's a big factor too. Uh, Studies have shown that about almost 30% of people who die by suicide are intoxicated with alcohol at the time of their death. That's a third of suicides. It's probably one of the um, few things that accounts for so many people dying by suicide. And so substance use with alcohol, now we have problems with opioids, certainly is related to suicidal behavior. Uh, Jill, uh, we've focused on suicide prevention and awareness on a previous show, um, and we wanted to tweet out a link to that show. Uh, We interviewed a woman who lost a family member to suicide. You can find that link on Twitter uh, by searching at where we live. But I guess my next question for you is, you know, each time there are high-profile suicide deaths, uh, this conversation happens uh, nationwide. Uh, Coincidentally, uh, the two deaths of uh, Kate Spade and Anthony Bourdain happened the same week that the CDC released released uh, this uh, report looking at suicide, uh, suicides increasing uh, nationwide. But I'm curious, what are the best ways to talk about suicide uh, when we are members of the media? And, uh, you know, how do we raise awareness as a nation to this problem? Well, media can play a, a tremendous role in suicide prevention by talking about stories of uh, survival, talking about stories of resistance and talking about suicide in a safe way where people can um, associate with the positive aspects of taking care of yourself. And if you're struggling or or really in pain, because that's what happens with people who are suicidal, to encourage people to reach out for help, to let them know where to reach out for help. But also when people are in pain, they're not always able to reach out for help. So the media can work in helping family members to know how to identify when somebody may be at risk and give them tips on what they can do. When the media reports about just the suicide or and includes issues around method, most people will be fine, but the person who's at immediate risk can say, hey, that's just like me, and then that might spur them on to act on something they might not otherwise have acted on. So media, positive stories of resilience and survival can make a huge difference because we do know most people who have been suicidal actually go on to engage in life. Um, They do not die by suicide. Jill, I wanted to, before we uh, head to break, I did want to ask, you know, uh, for our listeners who uh, may, uh, again, we, there is that National Suicide Prevention Hotline if they feel that they need to talk to someone. It's 1-800-273-TALK. But if you know someone, whether it's a friend or a relative, and you worry about um, them taking their own life, what should they do? Because, I, you know, we've heard anecdotally some worry that if they mention, are you feeling suicidal, that that could maybe spur them on to action quicker. I mean, what, what is the best way right. to help somebody if they know they're in crisis at the moment? 
so that's a great question, and we know from research that if you ask somebody about suicide and use the words, are you thinking of suicide, are you thinking of taking your life, you will not make them suicidal, because if they are, they are. And also, it's a complex process. But asking about how are you, what's going on, are you thinking of killing yourself, I'm worried about you and I care about you, can make a big difference, and it actually has a positive effect of reducing suicide risk, just merely asking and listening. Dr. Jill Harkavy-Friedman, again, is Vice President of Research at the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Jill, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, we're going to switch gears and get an update on the status of a beloved state park after severe storms caused devastating damage to Sleeping Giant in Hamden, also to the town of Hamden. More after the break, and you can join us too, 860-275-7266. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, we're going to hear about a new podcast with the Connecticut Connection. It's called Case Unsolved. It's the creation of New London's newspaper, The Day. That's just ahead. First, it's been almost one month since severe storms hit Connecticut and caused devastating damage to properties in several towns. Now, some of that damage was to popular recreation areas, including Sleeping Giant State Park in Hamden. The park has been closed, and we're wanting to find out when it may reopen. For an update on where things stand. I'm joined in studio now by Mike Lambert, Bureau Chief for Outdoor Recreation for the Connecticut Department of Energy and Environmental Protection, known as DEEP. Mike, welcome to the show. Thank you, Lucy. It's good to be with you. So we wanted to focus in on Sleeping Giant. Uh, I do know that there was damage to other state parks, but let's talk about Sleeping Giant first and how severe was that damage from those uh, very severe storms? Well, damage uh, at Sleeping Giant is severe, as you know. Um, We had um, uh, large areas of the park impacted uh, by the storms that moved through uh, in mid-May. We have areas uh, of the park uh, specifically around the picnic area and the main visitor parking area, which is an area of about uh, seven acres, that um, virtually every tree has been damaged, either uprooted um, broken, uh, broken in half, or uh, uh, severe damage in that area. Also, within the picnic area, we have a historic uh, uh, picnic shelter that's um, that the roof has been damaged, and some of the uh, historic uh, rock work that uh, needs to be repaired and replaced. And some of the other visitor amenities, the restroom facility um, has roof damage, as well as the uh, picnic tables and grills. So. Um, it was uh, a severe storm that uh, severely impacted Sleeping Giant State mm-hmm. Park. In addition to the damage, uh, I guess the most obvious damage at the public use areas, uh, there's a number of trees that are down uh, throughout the trail system in the backcountry and the main trail system that goes to the summit. I know uh, through some of our uh, field work, we've identified at least 150 trees that are down on the summit trail. And, you know, we're, we're continuing to assess the backcountry trails and likely going to find more damage uh, in remote areas of the park. So what has DEEP been doing? So you're obviously assessing the damage, uh, but how many people do you have to, to try to, you know, get these trees out of the way and to move forward? So uh, there were a number of parks that have been impacted by the storm in addition to Sleeping Giant. Um, 
our staff have been uh, involved with this cleanup effort uh, since day one. Um, I know our staff did uh, yeoman's work at Kettletown State Park uh, in order to make the park available for the Memorial Day weekend. That, that The timing of the storm uh, is really our busiest time in parks because we're preparing uh, the park for the official start of our recreation season here in Connecticut. So we've been engaged in cleanup, um, you know, since the day after the storm. Um, we've been working closely with the Department of Administrative Services uh, in an effort to identify a specialized contractor who can come in and do some of the work uh, that's needed at Sleeping Giant and also Wharton Brook. Um, in addition, you know, we've, we've had an outpouring of support uh, from our friends uh, and volunteers. Um, we, we've been fortunate at Sleeping Giant to have uh, the longtime support of the Sleeping Giant Park Association. They were formed in 1924 to protect the park, and they manage over 30 miles of trail within Sleeping Giant. So our staff are continuing to assess some of the backcountry trails, and as soon as they're made safe, we're definitely going to call on our volunteers to um, utilize their expertise and assistance with the cleanup effort in the park. And I wanted to um, bring into the conversation uh, Hamden's mayor, Kurt Balzano Lang. Again, Sleeping Giant State Park uh, lies in that town, but also Hamden saw significant damage as well. Uh, uh, mayor Lang, welcome to the show. Uh, good morning. Thanks for having me. I understand that uh, soon you'll be with Senator uh, Richard Blumenthal as FEMA officials arrive for a preliminary damage assessment. Uh, walk us through uh, that process and how much damage has the town seen? Um, the process is beginning um, uh, today uh, in Gusto with FEMA officials actually in town. Uh, one team that's going to be reviewing public damage and one that's going to be reviewing private damage uh, in homes and in yards. Uh, but it is a lengthy process. Uh, we've been into this cleanup now for three weeks plus, and um, I've had the equipment operators and loggers in from, from out of town because municipalities just don't have the type of equipment that, that would be necessary to do this type of a cleanup. Um, we had in town 500-plus trees just that were in the right-of-way, street, sidewalk, and 10 feet in of the, of the road uh, that came down mostly in, in wires, uh, at the time live wires. Um, so we began doing our work immediately to try and open the roads up and, and make it accessible for our public safety vehicles and then slowly, methodically cleaning and trimming and cutting and taking trees down. Um, and it's very costly. Uh, we've we've spent well in excess of a million dollars already, and that'll be over two before we're done. And so having the FEMA officials in today and having the commitment of both our senators and, and uh, Congresswoman DeLauro has been uh, has been really wonderful. So what are you looking specifically uh, for for from FEMA? Just dollars to help with the cleanup, and how much are we talking about, Maryland? So the FEMA process um, would give seventy five percent reimbursement to eligible costs for for town expenses, and that's certainly something that's important to us because we had to borrow these funds. These, these are not funds that were that were just laying around. Um, so we had to do an emergency storm account, get the dollars in place, and, and, and get to work. Um, but even more important than that at this point, every day that goes by, and certainly every week, we find more and more folks that have been coming out talking about the damage done to their houses and to their yards. In the 10s and 20s, um, the, the highest number I've heard so far for a yard uh, is seventy five thousand dollars of damage, and we're hoping that FEMA reimbursement process can help 
the uh, homeowners, not only with the homes, because most, or at least a, a good portion of, the, of that damage is covered through insurance, um, but if you have 20, 25 trees down and a damaged septic system that may or may not be covered by insurance, you need, you need some help. Uh, this is where we live. Uh, today we're getting an update on uh, some of the storm damage seen on um, the southern part of the state, specifically at Sleeping Giant State Park in Hamden, also in the town of Hamden. On the phone with us is Mayor Kurt Balzano-Lang, who's the mayor of Hamden, Connecticut. Also Mike Lambert's in studio with me, Bureau Chief for Outdoor Recreation for the Connecticut Department of Energy and Environmental Protection. Uh, Mike, in terms of uh, the FEMA officials coming in today, again, for this preliminary damage assessment, um, I mean, how hopeful are you that the state could receive money to help with the cleanup efforts, and how soon could that money come if approved? Do we know? Well, <clears throat> absolutely. We're hopeful that uh, uh, the FEMA will come in and help reimburse uh, our cost for the cleanup effort. Um, I know in late May, we submitted our preliminary damage assessments for parks and forest, uh, and this is part of their uh, process where they come out and do the field visit and actually do on-site evaluations of the damage. Um, typically, the, the type of work that we're going to be involved in at Sleeping Giant and Wharton Brook, uh, it's a large project, so uh, the FEMA support uh, will come in the form of a reimbursement uh, to our uh, state agency uh, for the, uh, the cost associated with that. So uh, it would be uh, a tremendous support for us if you know, we were able to, to get that support. Do we know what the costs have been to the state of Connecticut to date? I mean, this, this is happening near the end of the fiscal year, which is tough. Yeah, we uh, when we put our preliminary estimates together, which is really, it's a difficult challenge to do that early in the process, we estimated um, um, uh, around over $800,000 uh, for the cleanup effort uh, just in our parks and forest. And so um, it's, uh, it's very expensive. Uh, you can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. We heard uh, Mike Lambert talking about the importance of, of volunteers uh, to the state park system. Uh, on the phone right now is Julie, who's calling from North Haven, and I believe she's a member of the Sleeping Giant Parks Association. Julie, uh, what's your question or comment? Um, simply to say that um, we, as a Sleeping Giant Park Association, um, you know, we've been involved in trail maintenance since um, the trails were established by groups of volunteers in the early 90s, and um, our, our crews go out every week. Um, we are patiently, um, although perhaps impatiently <laughs> some, in some respects, waiting for the go-ahead from the state to be able to go in and, and assist. Um, I want to thank Mike um, Lambert for the shout-out to us. Um, we really are passionate about the giant and... Um, this kind of help ex helps explain our eagerness to get in there and, and help. Uh, Julie, how many members are part of the association? Um, the association itself has somewhere around 1,600 members. Um, and recently, through our Facebook page, we, we have, um, we've got about 4,000 followers. So mm -hmm. people are very passionately interested in what's going on in the park and how they can help. We have a list of over 100 um, volunteers who don't normally come out with us, but they have expressed an interest to um, to participate as soon as we're we're given the go ahead. Have you ever seen this kind of damage before, Julie? Oh gosh, no. Um, this is this is more than a 100 year event. This is, I think, very unique in the history of the giant itself. And in terms of obviously, there's a lot of cleanup that needs to be done, but. Uh, Concern about the long-term impact of the habitats uh, that these parks provide. 
Um, the in general, our our philosophy is going to be um, to help clear the trails themselves to make them accessible and safely passable. But otherwise, um, the nature will be left to do what Mother Nature does: um, either repair herself or create new habitats um, or additional habitats for the um, creatures, um, the, the the biodiversity that that exists in the park. Um, one area of concern is um, our invasive species um, committee, who goes out to um, to try to eradicate those those species that um, come in and take advantage of um, sort of the opportunity of a cleared space. And we want to monitor that over the next few months and years um, to make sure that um, things like you, um, the winged euonymus doesn't gain a foothold in the park. Well, Julie, thank you uh, for calling again. She's a member of the Sleeping Giant Park Association. Uh, also, uh, another call right now is uh, Chuck calling from Watertown. Chuck, go ahead. Hi, I, 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 I'm a member of the Sleeping Giant Park Association Training Group. I agree 100% with what Julie said. Um, we've had a really good uh, relationship with uh, with DEEP. I know they, they do amazing things with uh, limited manpower and funds. Um, we were kind of surprised when they were we were told to stay off the trails when uh, when uh, the tornado hit. And I just wanted to ask Mike, uh, what has to happen before we're going to be allowed to let get back to work again? We're uh, kind of uh, twiddling our thumbs here, knowing there's a lot of work to do. And uh, I, I'd like to ask him uh, what kind of progress is being made in that area. Thanks, Chuck. Go ahead, Mike Lambert from Deep. Well, thank you, Chuck. And uh, first, let me say thank you for all your support. Uh, this is um, um, someone who's done trail work before. I realized just the uh, significant amount of uh, work that goes into maintaining trails. And and when you're 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 dealt a severe storm like this, um, it it only adds uh, to that workload. But we are actively uh, assessing the backcountry trails now. Uh, matter of fact, I spoke with our district supervisor this morning, and they are developing a plan. They have uh, gone out and assessed some of the backcountry trails, uh, ensuring that they are safe to to get volunteers on them. And um, so they're actively developing a plan, and will be uh, in touch with the Sleeping Giant Park Association. And um, hopefully, this will be a concerted effort. Um, our hope is that we have a, um, a contractor on the ground in the coming weeks who can um, assist with some of the, the major cleanup and some of the visitor use areas. So I see this as a two-pronged approach. You know, we, we've got um, uh, staff and volunteer groups uh, working the uh, backcountry trails. We have a, a specialized contractor who can assist with the major cleanup in the picnic area and the uh, main summit trail. So, um, you know, our goal is to, to, to have the park open as soon as possible, and um, so uh, we appreciate all the support uh, that you've offered us. So open by the fall? That's the goal, yeah, as soon as possible. You know, we, uh, you know, unfortunately I can't give an exact time frame on that, but, um, you know, with the support we have uh, uh, with the friends groups and uh, uh, staff and uh, contractor efforts, we... Uh, we're definitely going to work towards that goal. And before I get back to Hamden Mayor uh, Lang, who's also on the phone with us, just a quick update. So besides Sleeping Giant State Park, uh, there's also one other park that's still closed? Yes, uh, Wharton Brook State Park in Wallingford is still closed. And um, there are portions of Kettletown uh, State Park in Southbury. Um, the trails are closed there, as is the um, 
the group uh, campground. Are people listening when uh, Deep says this, the parks are closed and not attempting to go in anyway to see the damage for themselves? Yeah, they are. Um, and it, that is so important with the, the, the nature of this storm and the condition, um, the way the, the trees are damaged and uprooted. That is so important that people stay out of these closed areas. Uh, we want to get people back there as soon as possible. And uh, so, you know, the patients and, and allowing the contractors to do their work and the volunteers and the friends group uh, is going to be paramount. Um, again, I mentioned uh, Hamden Mayor Kurt Bolzano-Lang is on the phone with us as well. Any lessons uh, that we can take from this particular uh, storm or the storms that hit uh, that part of the state, uh, Mayor Lang, in terms of disaster preparedness? You know, I, I think that um, there's certainly a few things. Um, one is that, <laughs> it's not simplistic, but you always have to be prepared. You have to have a family plan. You have to be prepared with uh, with equipment if you're going to be out of power for a significant amount of time. You have to think about um, checking on neighbors and checking on, on people that are, are within a community that might not be able to be reached for a while. And that's something that we take for granted nowadays. Uh, but uh, one-third of, of our municipality, and we have 33 square miles, uh, a, thir- a third of it was, was completely impassable for two days. So we had um, the fire department and emergency management actually responding to emergency medical calls via all-terrain vehicles. This was uh, a very unusual situation for uh, for modern society. Um, so having your batteries and your water back up, and honestly taking the storm warning seriously is, is uh, something else. I think that we all fall into um, into a bit of a uh, a bit of a lackadaisical uh, scenario because there's so many storm warnings that come across the news so often. But when someone's talking about a tornado or a hurricane or other serious event, we really do have to take it seriously. And I, we definitely don't want to d- diminish the fact that six homes were uh, damaged in the storm in the town of Hamden. Uh, what's happened to those residents? Where are they living? There's some that are living in hotels, some with families, and some that have actually uh, rented apartments already because their insurance company has said it's going to take upwards of 10 months to uh, to reconstruct the homes. And uh, before we head to break, I wanted to go back to uh, Deep's uh, Mike Lambert. I asked uh, uh, Mayor Lang about uh, lessons learned. There have been uh, quite a few storms in the past uh, several years uh, that have uh, caused widespread uh, damage uh, in terms of how the state could be better prepared for this kind of incident when it happens? Well, I think uh, part of our efforts with uh, our park operations is, is, is we work diligently to identify and remove uh, hazard trees, dangerous limbs in our public use areas. Um, uh, that, that effort helps uh, in certain situations. It did not help in this case. This was um, a significant storm event uh, with uh, impacts that really no one could prepare for. Um, but, you know, efforts like that, um, I think the National Weather Service and our local weather stations do an excellent job of getting the word out. Um, uh, so I think it's important to understand that, you know, outdoor recreation shouldn't be contemplated when, you know, these types of uh, storm events are forecast. Uh, we hear so often about um, the, the fiscal situation in the state of Connecticut. Is there a little pot of money when uh, disaster strikes or do we have to rely uh, on, as you said, um, we're hearing from the towns about trying to get private contractors and, and borrowing. Uh, what about the state of Connecticut? So what we've done so far is we've actually utilized uh, our um, minor maintenance bond funds for this effort. 
Uh, so we're continuing to fund the effort through that. Uh, those funds are utilized to make repairs in parks. Um, and, uh, you know, again, we're hopeful that uh, we'll have the FEMA support to uh, seek reimbursement. Mike Lambert, again, is Bureau Chief for Outdoor Recreation for the Connecticut Department of Energy and Environmental Protection. Mike, thanks for coming in today. Thank you. Also on the phone with us is Hamden Mayor Kurt Balzano-Lang. I understand just a few minutes you're going to be uh, heading out to uh, meet the FEMA officials for this preliminary damage assessment. Uh, Thank you for joining us on your busy day. My pleasure. You have a good day. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Up next, have you been listening to Case Unsolved? It's a new crime podcast. It focuses on Connecticut cold cases. We're going to hear more from the staff at New London's newspaper, The Day. They created the podcast. And you can join our conversation, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up tomorrow, the Affordable Care Act's protections for people with pre-existing conditions is one of the most important provisions in the law, but it may be in jeopardy after a decision by the Department of Justice. We'll find out more about that tomorrow on Where We Live. Now, right now, we wanted to find out, how did you ever live without podcasts? Chores around the house, endless drives to and from work, they're so much nicer now, right? Well, just when you thought you couldn't add another podcast to your playlist, we wanted to draw your attention to a new new crime podcast produced by New London's newspaper, The Day. Here's a little preview. Michaud, white female, cause of death was asphyxia by strangulation. And she was laying on the bed, naked, cord around her neck. And our department really wanted to solve this. It's always stayed with me, uh, right on through all the different ranks that I held and all the different jobs that I did in the police department. For some places, well, she's just a prostitute. What are you doing spending all that time? I mean, it's not like this happened even five years ago. I mean, this is 1984, you know, 30-some years ago. Let's, you know, let's close this case. You know, that's what I want and whatever it takes. That's from Case Unsolved, a podcast from The Day. Joining us now in studio to tell us more is Carlos Virhen, digital news director at The Day, co-producer and narrator of The Day's new podcast. Also, Karen Florin, a reporter for The Day. Uh, Carlos and Karen, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Uh, so let's start with you, uh, Carlos. Uh, how did you uh, start to work with the newsroom with people like Karen Florin on this on this podcast? Yeah, I think the idea came up um, late summer of last year, the day uh, we'd been producing a couple uh, at that point, I think three podcasts, three or four podcasts. Um, And so there was interest um, among editors, um, many of whom are podcast fans. So they've they've listened to their favorite podcasts, including true crime podcasts. Our managing editor, Tim Cotter, was a big fan of Crime Town. Um, and he broached the subject with us, and and uh, we already had a list of uncased solves that that Karen Florin had generated through reporting on um, the regional uh, cold case unit being disbanded recently in the last couple of years, and kind of dragged in a couple of other people, including uh, a couple of more reporters, and and we went from there. Karen Karen started looking through our uh, our file clip our clips. 
So, Karen, you're a longtime reporter with the day, uh, he, and Carlos just mentioned there used to be a, a unit within the state that would look at cold cases. Tell us a little bit about why it was disbanded, and how did you decide on what cold cases to focus on? So the unit was disbanded, uh, no surprise, due to funding after um, having incredible impact. I think uh, in southeastern Connecticut, there were eight arrests made in cold cases and as many convictions. I was interested in uh, Desiree Mashad because really it was a case I didn't know a lot about. I wanted something new. And we had a lot of lucky breaks there. Uh, the first of which was that we had excellent previous reporting on it that gave us a lot of leads to jump into to find uh, people who are still around, who, are, who still care, and who wanted to talk about it. So uh, Desiree Mashad, tell us a little bit about her. She was just 18. She'd had a terrible upbringing and wound up on the streets of New London working as a prostitute. Uh, she also had a, a very artistic side and was a terrific painter. So at the same time that she was involved in the grittier side of life on the streets, she also got involved in the arts community in New London and was active at the Hygienic uh, which is a, it was a restaurant slash gallery, is now a gallery um, well known for its annual uh, art show. I understand uh, Desiree was one of many cold cases uh, the state of Connecticut focused on when they came up with uh, using playing cards to try to get tips from people within uh, the Department of Correction. That's really interesting. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I know you were, the day had reported on that a few years ago. Sure. It was a great idea of the, theirs that they would make up uh, a deck of cards um, with information about each case. Desiree was actually the queen of clubs. Uh, the next case that we're doing, William Spicer, he, he's the king of hearts. And the third case we're, we're doing, uh, Erica Serioni, will be the six of diamonds. So they made up this deck of cards and distributed it within the prison system. It's the only cards that they have access to and uh, have generated a lot of leads from people who see the cards, realize that there's a reward um, for providing information and uh, who come forward after they hear something or if they know something with very valuable information. Mm. Uh, you mentioned that she was murdered when she was just 18. Uh, she was working as a prostitute uh, in the, the city of New London. I wanted to play a clip now uh, from Case Unsolved. Uh, in this clip, it's, we're going to hear from retired Groton Town police detectives Mike Lewin and Matt Morton who talk about uh, Mashad's murder. And it was a typical motel room that somebody was living in. It wasn't... I'm spending the night and then going over to the seaport or I'm spending the night going down and see a, a launching of a sub. It was well lived in, you know, clothes all over, fast food wrappers everywhere. There was stuff, pile of clothes on the floor. There was a towel here, right? Everything else was neat. There was nothing knocked over. I believe this was a radio, though, with the cord ripped and around her neck. Looked like there was a, I don't know if it was minor or what, uh, stab or puncture wound on her chest. 
But that apparently that, that was not the cause of death. Again, that's a clip from Case Unsolved. It's a new crime podcast produced by uh, New London's newspaper, The Day. In studio with me is Karen Florin, a reporter, also Carlos Virgen, digital news director at The Day and co-producer and narrator of The Day's new podcast. Uh, we, when we listen to the podcast, Carlos, uh, we don't just hear from uh, you know uh, retired detectives or uh, others in, uh, in law enforcement, but you actually track down uh, members and friends of of these victims, how difficult was that? Um, well, the, one of the main characters in the story it, uh, turned out to be uh, a, a former prostitute that knew Desiree during the period that she disappeared and then eventually was found dead. Uh, Karen, uh, through her contacts uh, working the court system, uh, was able to uh, amazingly um, locate her, and, 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 and amazingly she uh, wanted to do be part of the podcast. So that was such a great rev- revelation for the podcast as we started, not knowing how far we could go, not knowing how much um, uh, participation law enforcement was going to have with us or even her family. That was like the first early on in the podcast mm-hmm. where we knew how we were onto something here. You also uh, tracked down uh, relatives of Desiree, uh, and, and that was difficult, too, after all these years uh, to see a reporter at their door asking about uh, their, their daughter, uh, their sister that was killed. What was that like, Karen? Sure. Uh, Carlos and I knocked on the door of Desiree's mother, and she was um, firm in that she had been through too much trauma and really didn't want to talk about it. And lo and behold, we thought that was a dead end, but she did call up her other daughter, Tina Robb. And Tina, after much convincing, uh, met us out at the cemetery to look for Desiree's grave and then actually gave us some very valuable uh audio information. So another lucky break that we had. Carlos, uh, what's the point again of this podcast? Is it to generate tips that these crimes could uh, become solved one day? Or is it to focus on uh, the story of people like Desiree who've been forgotten? Right. I think that our goal from the beginning was to retell the uh, the story of these lives um, and and hopefully reach a new audience, um, uh, reach people outside of our readership. Um, and, you know, some of these, the Desiree case is from 85. So unless you were around in 85 and, and you've been a subscriber to the day, you, you most likely are not familiar with uh, Desiree's case. Um, so that, that was kind of our, our goal from the beginning is to um, retell their, their stories, um, hopefully with new information where, where possible and uh, in a compelling way where we were able to hear the voice of people that, that, that knew them when they were alive. And uh, yeah, to reach a new audience for mm-hmm. sure. Wow. What's been the response? It's been really good. Um, we've all gotten individually, we've gotten uh, feedback from people we know, people around town, people in our coverage area. Uh, we've gotten emails where um, the Desiree case uh, in particular, where, where people have reached out to us saying, you know, my, my ex-wife was a, a te- her teacher in high school. Um, there was a state uh, state uh, police officer who contacted us who was involved in a, in a separate case that Desiree was involved in. Uh, and then we've got a Facebook group where people have been really, um, you know, vocal and asking questions and, 
And you know, any pushback so, on why this isn't a print version of the story versus a, yeah, yeah. a podcast? Well, yes, uh, we did uh, actually on <laughs> on the day dot com. So we're publishing our podcast through through all the regular podcast channels, but also we're developing these uh, stories uh, on our on the day dot com with the the audio player. Mm-hmm. And yes, the first uh, episode that we published, there were a number of commenters that were wondering where the print story is and why aren't we, why are we doing a podcast? They're, they don't have time for a podcast. They can read much faster than they can hear, listen to a show. Um, and, and it was to be expected, I guess, you know, our, some of our readership, especially our commenters mm-hmm. are a, a certain demographic and a certain uh, disposition, I think. Well, you may get some love from public radio listeners. Yeah, they they appreciate okay. the podcast. Yeah, I'm sure. Thank so you. Uh, this week, uh, the fourth episode is going to roll out. What's your next focus? We heard about Desiree. So this week's episode is actually a bonus episode on the Desiree Mashad case because of the, the feedback we've gotten and some of the, the new information. We um, When we first produced the, the three episodes, we had not been able to speak to active law enforcement agents. Um, since then, we were able to talk to uh, an active detective and a prosecutor. And so we'll add that information. Um, and plus, we're going to answer some of the questions that we got through email and on our Facebook page just to clarify some, mm-hmm. uh, some of the information. And Karen, what will be your involvement? So I'll be answering questions. Uh, and just last week, we went out and did those interviews with the, with the detective and the prosecutor. So if I can add any depth to that, I will do my best. Well, hopefully we've piqued our listeners' interest again uh, to this uh, new crime podcast. Uh, I found myself drawn in to Desiree's story. So thank you so much for joining us today to tell us about it. Carlos Virhen, Digital News Director at The Day, co-producer and narrator of The Day's uh, new podcast. Also, Karen Florin, reporter for The Day. Good to see both of you. Thank you. Thanks, Lucy. Uh, today's show produced by Lydia Brown. Special thanks to Kion Wolf and Carmen Baskoff. Learn more about our show at wmpr.org slash where we live. You can download the podcast, too. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. As always, thanks for listening.